Communion, Lord's Supper, Eucharist are titles given to a sacrament, ordinance, or rite celebrated by Christians around the world. The origin of this act of worship comes from the institution of Jesus Christ, but the meaning and practice have a long and broad history leading to, as we all know, a wide breadth of opinions and consequent divisions. The best place to begin to understand this great sacrament is with the witness of the earliest Christians, which is what we are, will be doing today on Deep in Scripture. Well, welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined today by Dr. Kenneth Howell. Hello, Ken. Good morning. It's good to have you, Ken, join us. As always on the program, and all of you joining us, I appreciate this. I hope that this program is uh, an encouragement to you. Uh, you know, the word deep in Scripture, the reason we've given it this title is because we believe very deeply that the way to grow closer to our Lord Jesus Christ is through Scripture and this wonderful gift of God's Word. And our desire for this program is to take the time to appreciate how understanding the meaning and the, the spiritual insights of Scripture best come to us when studied in the rule of faith, as the Church teaches through the Spirit that gave us the Scriptures. And the topic that we're going to look at today, which is a continuation of last week's program, Dr. Hall and I began looking at the Didache, which is one of the earliest and maybe one of the greatest of the early writings of the Church. We began looking at that, and, and we kind of ended where the Didache addressed the issue of the Eucharist, and we just scratched the surface on that. We want to pick that up again today to recognize that, as I mentioned in the opening, we live at a time when Christians are divided around the world on this issue of the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist. Uh, what it means, how we should celebrate it, whether it's important, uh, what it accomplishes in our life, what is it? Uh, Ken, when I was in seminary, besides being trained as a Presbyterian Calvinist, I was also serving as uh, a pastor of a local church of Scotland. And they only celebrated the Lord's Supper once a year for a week. Wow. Wow. And the only people, you know, I, there are people today that complain about Catholics not having an open communion, but at the Church of Scotland, you weren't allowed to celebrate the Eucharist unless you had a token that proved you had the approval of the elders to be admitted to the Eucharist, which they didn't call it the Eucharist, but, you know... Uh, only once a year. And I know in your own practice and background, there's a lot of different understandings of the Lord's Supper, the Communion, and the Eucharist. Well, there was a big, uh, yeah, in, in my Presbyterian background, there was a big question about the frequency which, with which it should be done. And there were a few, very few congregations that would sometimes celebrate it weekly, and that they were thought to be very strange. So in my Catholic experience, um, the... Um, it was it was strange for me to get used to the idea of having it every week, but one thing is clear that 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 seems to be certainly the practice of the early church. 
Ken, what we're going to try and do today, and we're going to continue the next week on Deep in Scripture, but we, we entered last week into, for many Christians, unknown territory uh, beyond Scripture into the Didache, into the other writings of the early church. And what I'd like us today is to kind of do an end run. We're going to start with the Didache, work our way through a couple other writings of the early church fathers, back to Scripture, but focusing on this issue of the Eucharist. Before we do that again, though, Ken, Talk from your own experience as a scholar, scripture scholar, how indeed it was the witness of the early church fathers that opened your mind and heart to the beauty of the Eucharist. Well, it was clear to me that as I began reading the earliest church fathers, the Didache, Justin Martyr, Ignatius of Antioch, that first of all, the Eucharist uh, was called by that term meaning not just thanksgiving, but it seems to have been a technical term to refer to the sacrament. And that was something different than was true in my experience as a Presbyterian um, or in most Protestant experiences that I knew of. Um, on the other hand, um, I was also impressed by how central it was in their thinking and especially in their worship. At the time in which I began reading them, I began thinking about the question of what constitutes proper Christian worship. How do we know how to have a worship service? Um, should it be just preaching? Should it be preaching in hymns? Should all what, what should it be? And it was very clear in reading these early church fathers, especially the Didache, that the Eucharist was very central to the liturgical life um, of the early church. And so I asked myself the question, well, why didn't I see that in Scripture before, if it's, if it's true? And the fact is, I think it is in Scripture, but it's just that I missed it. It's one of those verses I never saw, so to speak, because my eyes were not open to seeing it. But once I saw this in the early church fathers, it was unmistakably clear to me that there was a continuity between the times of the New Testament and these earliest writers. You know, Ken, if, if the audience has ever listened to any of the programs mm -hmm. on the journey home, and you've been a guest many times on mm -hmm. my program, more often than not, it's the readings of the early church fathers that opens up the minds and hearts of of the guests to a fuller understanding of the Christian faith. And I'm wondering, Ken, if in a sense the, the absolute centrality and significance of the Eucharist to our entire Christian faith is much like, if you, here's an analogy, if you would, uh, uh, that I'm shooting from the hip on, the meaning of the family gains its core understanding from an understanding of marriage. And even within the marriage, the relationship of husband and wife. And if you have an aberrant view of marriage, you end up with a, a radically different view of the family. If you don't That's see true, that yeah. the marriage as the unity of a man and woman brought together in union, sacramental union, under God as two uh, people mutually submissive to one another in obedience to Christ, that gives a meaning to marriage. But if you separate that, and if you, if you redefine marriage uh, based on some other concept, you end up with a radically different understanding of family. And wouldn't you say that's the same thing that happens when you take the Eucharist away from the centrality of our Christian faith. Well, St. Thomas Aquinas said, Marcus, that um, 
he said that the that all of the sacraments give us grace, but the Eucharist alone gives us the author of grace. And that is why, because the Eucharist is not just God's grace coming to us through the ministry of the Spirit, but it's God himself coming to us in Jesus Christ. That's why the Eucharist is the very center of the church's life and worship. And what impressed me as I looked through history was just how utterly central the Eucharist was in the life of the church, let's say, for the first 1,500 years. Um, And when you look back at the time of the Reformation, for example, in the 16th century, let's say the two great leaders of the Reformation, one would be the the Lutheran, uh, Martin Luther, and then John Calvin, um, they both still had that Catholic sense of the centrality of the Eucharist, but it was gradually lost over time in in their lifetime and in and in subsequently uh, in subsequent times but there's just no doubt about it that the um, the church has always seen that as the center because as the church has always said the the eucharist is truly the body and blood soul and divinity of Christ it's been pointed up many times throughout history church history by mm-hmm. church writers theologians that long before a group of books were labeled the New Testament or the New yeah. Covenant. Long before that, the first thing that was labeled the New Covenant was the Eucharist. Oh, yeah. And then that's right there in, in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. is very, very clear. And it is the New Covenant because the celebration of the meal, just like the Passover meal of the Old Testament, was a, was a celebration of God's redemption of his people from, from slavery. The same is true for us. The Eucharist is the celebration of God's redemption of us from sin. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodeheit. I'm joined by uh, my partner, Dr. Kenneth Howell. Ken, okay, let's get into the Didache, and we're, we're going to be looking at your translations that you did in your more recent books. Uh, this is from Clement of Rome and the Didache that the Coming Home Network had the privilege of publishing. The Didache, uh, quickly again, when do, you th- when do we scholars believe this was published and then address the Eucharist from the Didache? Well, it's hard to know exactly, but most scholars uh, put it somewhere within 100 100 years, let's say 50 A.D. to 150 A.D. Uh, It comes from Syria, uh, Syrian-speaking Christians, perhaps translated into Greek. Um, So it is one of the earliest documents of Christianity outside the the New Testament. In chapters 9 and 10, that's where we find the discussion of the Eucharist. But notice that it's not, if you read carefully, it's not a theological dissertation on the Eucharist. It's instructions to pastors about how to celebrate the Eucharist. And so what we find is that there are set prayers for how to, in, uh, how to perform or how to um, say the Eucharistic prayers, to lead the, the worship of the congregation in that. And so, for example, it says in chapter 9, this is the way you should celebrate the Eucharist. You say, Father, um, for the holy vine of David, your servant, which you made known to us through Jesus Christ, we thank you for that, be your glory forever. Then he goes on to talk about the broken bread, uh, the idea of the church, the unity of the church, praying for the unity of the church always 
is an essential part when he says that let your church be gathered from the ends of the earth into your kingdom because yours is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. Another important verse in, in this, I, I hesitate to use the word verse, but a quote from this is that the author says, let no one eat or drink from your Eucharist except those who are baptized in the name of the Lord. So here we see in the earliest days, not new instructions, but he's reminding them of what the tradition is, that baptism is indeed that rite that brings a person into unity in the mystical body of Christ, which therefore enables them to receive the gift of our Lord in the Eucharist. Yeah, that, that, that's absolutely right. What's clear here is that the Eucharist is being considered, as Paul did, well, as Jesus did, for only for believers, for those that have made the profession and are part of it. But it's also for those that may not be true believers, like Judas. <laughs> that is to say, there may be people in the church who are not true believers. Uh, I certainly hope I'm not one of them. <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, um, it, it and so it's, it's administered to those who are baptized and are, as we will see in a minute, walking according to the faith um, of the Lord. All right, Ken, is there anything more in the Didache that you want to emphasize before we move on to Ignatius? Well, I, I think the, um, the the one thing that has struck out, uh, stuck out to me is in chapter 10 of the Didache, where the author says, uh, gives again this prayer, we thank you, Holy Father, for your name which you cause to dwell in our hearts and for the knowledge, faith, and immortality which you've made known through Jesus Christ. That phrase, that, that your name dwelling in our hearts, is, I think, an early expression of what becomes a Catholic understanding of salvation. Mm. That is, that the to be an do, adopted child of God is to have God dwelling within your heart or your soul, and that how that gets to us is through the Holy Eucharist. You mentioned, Ken, that scholars believe that the, the source of the Didache is, the, is Syria, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, the, the liturgy of the Roman Latin church, we can trace it back quite a ways into the early days of the church, but particularly in the Eastern liturgies, we can, yeah. go, can go back farther. Are there parallels from the prayers here in the Didache with the liturgies of the Eastern Church? Oh, yes. I think uh, we can clearly see that there was a, in the liturgy of St. Mark that was used in Alexandria, uh, very similar kinds of prayers. The wording is not always exactly the same, but this is why I think it, it, the, the claim is legitimate, that there was this universal understanding of what the particular doctor meant, in this case the Eucharist, and this practice of of the celebration of the Lord's body and blood might have been expressed in slightly different language in Alexandria or Syria or in what became Constantinople, but still there was this very clear um, expression of the reality of Christ's uh, presence in the Eucharist, the unity of the Church, and all of these things. So yes, I think there's a there's very clear continuities between this, uh, the Didache, between um, the liturgy of St. Mark used in Alexandria, and then later the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom used in Constantinople. All right. Well, 
you know, I give witness to the power of, of these quotes from the Didache in my own spiritual journey. Because I wasn't reading the Didache, um, uh, coming to it with a blank slate. I was already, I hate to call my, uh, I'm hesitant to call myself a biblical scholar, but I was trained in seminary and, and sure. was a pastor for 10 years. My point was that when I read the Didache, I was hearing scripture. I was hearing yeah. the continuity of the words of St. Paul and yeah, Peter right. and James. They're all there. The words of our Lord Jesus are there behind this. So uh, that's the advantage we have today, those of us that know Scripture well. And then you go to the Didache, and it's like, whoa, wait a second. You know, this is deja vu all over again. I'm hearing <laughs> the words of Jesus and, and Paul. And can. But there were other letters, of course, that of these early writers who were themselves disciples of the apostles. And, uh, you know, one great witness is Ignatius of Antioch. And you've translated his writings in your other book, Ignatius of Antioch and, and the writings of Polycarp. Talk a bit about Ignatius. And then we've got two quotes from two of his letters about the Eucharist. Well, just to underscore the importance of this letters, um, I happen to be reading the other night about the uh, the writings of Aristotle, which were lost. Most of the things we have from Aristotle were his his notes, um, perhaps made to himself, but his formal writings, most of them have been lost. We know this <laughs> well, from other writers who talk about them. Well, now just think about that. There may be all kinds of writings, Christian writings, that never saw the light of day. And But now we have seven letters from St. Ignatius of Antioch as he's going to Rome, led by, as he calls them, the ten lepers. These are the, the Roman guards that are taking him to Rome. And here we have seven letters that reflect the, the ideas, the teaching, uh, the practice, the beliefs of the ancient church. The, and the ancient church, and by ancient I mean right at the very beginning of the second century, we think that he was martyred somewhere around 107, perhaps as late as 117. But somewhere in the reign of the Emperor Trajan, uh, he made his way to Rome. And uh, <clears throat> these letters so beautifully express this same faith in the Eucharist. If I might just read from his letter to the Philadelphian Church, chapter 4, So be diligent to use one Eucharist, for there is only one flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ and one cup for unity in his blood. There is one altar, as there is one bishop, together with his presbyters and deacons, my fellow servants. This is so that whatever you do, you may do in accord with God. You know, Ken, when I was a Presbyterian pastor, I presumed that because of the way I'd been taught, that if I went back into the earliest days of the church before the church had been forcibly um, uh, crammed into the papist <laughs> yeah. uh, bottle, mold, mold yeah. uh, in the 4th century during Constantine and Augustine and then later Leo, great Leo the Great, who forced the papacy, you know, all this stuff. I believe that if you got deep into the darkest forest of the early church, you'd find Protestantism. And this quote from Ignatius 
doesn't sound very Protestant to me. <laughs> no, I'm afraid it doesn't, especially the idea that that the bishop is the center of the celebration of the church in a particular area, of course. And he's writing to to churches in Philadelphia and Smyrna and Magnesia. There's Each one of them has a bishop, and that bishop is the defining faith. He defines the faith. And anything, he goes on to say in another place, that you have to do this in union. You have to have the celebration of the Eucharist in um, union with the bishop in order to, for it to be a valid Eucharist. And that word presbyter, which I was a Presbyterian, we took from that. You were yeah. too. But in yeah. reality, that word is the source of our word priest. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't start calling the presbyters priest until a little bit later. but And they did that on the analogy of the Old, the Old Testament priest. And because the the role of Jesus Christ is prophet, priest, and king, but emphasizing that the presbyter is not only an elder, that is, is not only a leader of the church, but he also represents Jesus Christ to the church, uh, as Paul says in Ephesians 5 about Christ being the husband of the church. This uh, quote, Ken, from Philadelphians, reminds me very much of Ephesians 4, where St. Paul says in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in all. Yeah. Yeah, that's a remarkable verse. Um, And you really touch something in me when you read that, because... As he says here in in the letter to the Philadelphians, chapter 4, that there is one club for unity in his blood. One of the things that perplexed me before I became a Catholic was how Christians could be one. And I either did one of two things I think were wrong. One is I said, well, we'll never be one. Or the other was that I'd say, well, we're all one because we all believe in Jesus Christ and sort of you minimize what the faith is. But I think what what uh, what Ignatius is teaching here is exactly what we'll see in Paul a little bit later, and that is that is the Eucharist, which is the instrument of making the church one. The church is one because there's one Lord who's giving himself as a gift to the members of the church in the Eucharist. Yeah, it's hard to not hear Paul's statement to the Corinthians in chapter 10 when we look at both Ephesians as well as this verse from Philadelphians, anyone that has celebrated the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist. Here's the words of incitation that come from chapter 11 of Corinthians, but they often, unless you take time to read 1 Corinthians yourself, you may not hear what Paul says in chapter 10. And Ken, we'll get to this later in the program or maybe next week, but I I still want to point out verse 17 where Paul says, because there is one bread, we are many, are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. I mean, that is almost a direct parallel in words to what we find here in uh, Ignatius's letter to the Philadelphians. As if behind what he's saying to the Philadelphians is what they all know from the passing on orally in liturgy of the words of St. Paul. Well, there's so many important points that you've brought up there, but one of them I think I want to emphasize is that 
These writers, Ignatius, the writer of the Didache, Justin Martyr, they did not see themselves as expressing their own views. They did not see themselves as innovators, which we tend to value in, in modern society, but the ancients didn't value that that much. What they're doing is passing on what was already given to them. And I think what you're pointing out here with 1 Corinthians 10, 17, is that, yeah, this is what Paul was teaching, that unity comes through the celebration of the Eucharist and through the gift of Christ in the Eucharist. And this is what Ignatius is saying, this is my faith. And this is what later on Justin Martyr is saying, this is my faith. And again, if we we recognize Paul as the background, as he in this part of the world was the the pioneer missionary that planted so many of these churches, some of which we never even hear about, uh, that Luke didn't happen to mention his missionary account in the book of Acts. But St. Paul is probably connected to these Philadelphian Christians in one way or the other. Uh, and then the liturgies they are celebrating, they've been taught by their apostolic witness, the missionary. So behind that, we also hear this idea of one bishop, one yeah, bishop. Yeah. It's not yeah. just some random guy that happened to be listening to the radio and then said, oh, God called me to be a pastor, so I'm going to go start a <laughs> church. It ain't that way. Yeah. That yeah. these, as Paul says in Romans chapter 10, they had to be sent. The only yes, way they could right. hear the gospel is by somebody preaching, and the only way they could preach is because they had the authority of the apostles to send them forth. They were the bishops. And so we see Ignatius, a witness to that continuing custom. And it is the authority of the bishop that gives the authority to the Eucharist that gives, therefore, the foundation for the unity of these yeah, early Christians. Well, it's, it's very clear, I think, that in, in Luke's theology of mission that's in the book of Acts, when he talks about Paul and, and Silas and Paul and, and Barnabas, first Paul and Barnabas, he says that they were at the church at Antioch. And that the church sent them out on the mission. The idea of just suddenly deciding one day to go out and start a church is <laughs> nowhere taught in the New Testament. But what, what is clear is that the, the, the idea of mission is based upon unity. All right. Well, we're going to pause there, Ken. We'll come back and look at, at uh, a little bit more in Ignatius Lair of the Philadelphians than the Smyrnians. And then we're going to look at Justin Martyr, but all because we see in these the echo of Scripture as we end up our study in 1 Corinthians. So we'll be back in just a moment. Thank you for joining us on Deep in Scripture. Dr. Kenneth Howell has two wonderful books on the early church fathers, translations from the Greek as well as commentaries. His first book is on Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp of Smyrna. They were two of the greatest leaders of Christianity in the first half of the second century. The second book is on the letter to the Corinthians by Clement of Rome and the Didache. These were two of the most important documents from the earliest days of the church. For Christians today, these earliest writings hearken back to a time when the unity of faith and morals was a cherished gift and goal among professing believers. No Christian can remain unchallenged and unchanged while reading and absorbing these writings. If you are interested in these books by Dr. Kenneth Howell or purchasing them, go to the store link at chnetwork.org. Thank you.
next time on The Journey Home. Join Marcus as he welcomes former Baptist Jamie Richardson. Find out how the Holy Spirit led him home to the Catholic Church. That's on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined uh, as usual with Dr. Kenneth Howell. And if, uh, I just want to remind you, as we did during the break, that uh, if you want to find out more about the Coming Home Network as well as Deep in Scripture, you can go to chnetwork.org. And there's all kinds of wonderful buttons there to find out about our work. And there's one called Listen, and you can hear not only this program, but all the entire archive of the Deep in Scripture programs for the last six years or so. So uh, I hope you enjoy this. There's also a forum, and you can send us some questions. Hey, if you have some verses you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. All right, Ken. Uh, I, I paused you in the middle of, of the letters from Ignatius. And again, this is Ignatius of Antioch writing. He's one of the bishops of Antioch. And we know that before he was there, uh, Paul and Peter were both there at some point. So we have this tr- immediate, direct connection between Jesus and his apostles and Ignatius, and then to the Christians that he's writing. And uh, in the second letter we want to look at, Ken, is this letter to the Smyrnians, chapter 7. And, and in this particular passage, you know, I'm, I'm convinced... Ken, that you know, in those days they didn't have uh, you know, office max down the corner and they could get all the paper they wanted, <laughs> that they were always limited by the availability of the writing materials that they had. So they didn't have the uh, privilege of writing long, long, expanded letters. So usually they were limited in their letters to things that were significant or important, often correcting problems. So Ignatius takes a little bit different tact in his writing to the Smyrnians. Yeah, I think he, um, in chapter 7, he, he, when he begins with the words, they, he's talking about the heretics, probably the docetists that have left the church. He says, they abstain from the Eucharist and from set times of prayer because they do not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That flesh which suffered for our sins and which the Father raised in his kindness. Now, I can sort of see behind that, that wording someone saying, <clears throat> the Eucharist is not the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ. It's not the flesh which suffered for our sins. It's not the flesh which the Father raised from the dead. And what, what clearly what Ignatius is saying is that that's why they're outside the church, because they don't believe that that is true. And this really struck me uh, years ago when I first read this. Wow, this, this really means that they believed 
that it was the flesh that actually died on the cross is the same flesh that comes through the Eucharist. That was, that was quite a bold claim. Yeah, if we had more time, we could go through all the apologetics of this in the early church. But, I mean, the, the early Christians were called cannibals That's because right. they were speaking literally in their liturgies of eating the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they were so um, convincing about this that their opponents called them cannibals. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah and, and I think that clearly it was the difference between the way an insider understands and the way an outsider understands it. The outsider hears the language. You see this all the time in the media with the Pope, right? The Pope says yeah. something and the media completely reinterprets it in the light of their own worldview. And that's what the Romans were doing. That's what the pagans were doing when they heard the Christians speaking of the of eating the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. Well, um, in a way, it's a, to be expected because they had completely different understandings of what that meant. There seems behind this is reminiscent to the statement by St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 29. And in my own journey as a from a Presbyterian pastor into the Catholic faith, this verse had as much to do as anything which to awakening to me to the seriousness with which St. Paul and other early Christians understood the true presence of our Lord Jesus Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist, that I took it flippantly because Paul says in verse 29, 1 Corinthians 11, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. I mean, that's a pretty strong statement, Ken. Yeah, I think it clearly reflects the fact that why, why, would, why would simply eating bread and wine bring judgment upon yourself? I mean, nowhere in the Bible uh, or in Christian tradition do we have any reason to believe that. But if, in fact, it is the true flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, then, then that sentence makes sense, that it that would be a very serious matter. And that's why the church has always urged very careful self-examination in taking the Eucharist. Well, that explains why the communion rail isn't just open to anyone. As yeah. we read in the early writing at, of Didache, where it said that only baptized believers could eat or drink of the Eucharist, yeah. It was because of their love for all people. God desires all to be saved, to come to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, to come to salvation. Yeah. And so, as Paul said in the, a couple verses earlier in 1 Corinthians, he said, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I mean, Ken... If it's just merely a symbol, then what difference does it make? Yeah, if to, yeah. But but it is more than a symbol. And therefore, both Paul, as well as the author of the Didache, and as well as Ignatius, were taking this very seriously. Well, and it's also, let's say that it is a sign. or we could, Let's say it's a symbol, not a mere symbol, but it's a, it's something that represents something else. 
but in the case of a sacrament, it's something that represents, it, it carries what it signifies, and that's the nature of a sacrament as opposed to a pure symbol. But then it also signifies the unity of the church very clearly. In other words, by receiving Holy Communion, I am saying that I belong to God's church. And that's why it's important for only those who are truly committed to the church to receive Holy Communion. We, we live in a time, I'm afraid, of um, what I would call hyper-egalitarianism, um, the idea that everything must be equal. So, for example, it used to be that in America that you have an equality of access to justice. But now we have an equality of outcomes, right? Yeah. People expect to have the same outcome regardless of whether they work or whatever they do. And in, in this way, we, we, this has been transferred into the church so there, everyone should be welcomed, whether they're believers or not believers, whether they're Catholic or Protestant or whatever it is that they... But these texts very clearly show because of the sacredness of the actual Eucharist, the body and blood of Christ, that it should be for those who truly believe that it is the body and blood of Christ. In fact, At least the heretics in Ignatius's day had the decency not to come to church <laughs> because <laughs> they didn't believe in the Eucharist. They were demanding a hyper-tolerance for all views equally yeah. to be accepted. Uh, and of course, in yeah, our yeah. modern day, everyone listening knows we live in an age in which uh, uh, the tolerant in our culture consider intolerant people that have values. Um, but this writer, Ignatius, made this statement, Ken, it says, It is proper to avoid such people and not to speak about them in private or in public. Rather, it is profitable to hold to the prophets and especially to the gospel in which the passion has been shown us and the resurrection completed. It is these divisions which you should flee as the beginning of evil. I mean, already he's warning about this danger of uh, schism, huh? of schism, yeah, absolutely, and and that's why that's what I came to understand about what I would call the fallout of the Eucharist. The fallout of the Eucharist is that when you have a Eucharistic church, it does indeed unify people. It brings them together because they realize that it's it's greater than any one of us. It doesn't depend upon me. Uh, no, it doesn't even depend upon a St. Thomas Aquinas, as brilliant a theologian as he was. It depends upon the Lord himself. And that, Marcus, I think, is what we see in the first apology of Justin Martyr, is this reality of Christ in the Eucharist unifies and brings the church together. Ken, talk about Justin Martyr a bit uh, as we move over to his first apology. Uh, when I was in seminary, uh, Protestant seminary. He was one of the few early church fathers that we even noticed. And yeah. the only section we noticed in his first apology was actually the paragraph before the one we're going to look at, which gave us the one of the earliest descriptions of the liturgy of the church. Yeah, well, Justin Martyr, we're, we're pretty certain, came from a pagan background in Syria. Again, Syria at that time was, you know, the part north of Israel, uh, maybe going a little bit farther to the east. But what was called Syria in both the New Testament and later, uh, he came from a pagan background. He was a true philosopher. 
a philosophos in the ancient world was not a professor of philosophy. He was a searcher, one looking for wisdom. And he studied all these different philosophies. And finally, he said, the Christian philosophy is the truth. And so he committed himself. He was baptized, brought into the church, and became a, a strong advocate and apologist or defender of the faith. And that's what we have in these, these rather long writings uh, by ancient standards. Um, as you mentioned, in chapter 65 of this first apology, we have one of the earliest full descriptions of the liturgy or the Mass. And what struck me when I first read that was how close that was to what the Catholic Church celebrates every Sunday in its church. And the reason, I think, is given in the next chapter, chapter 66. I want to read this, a long paragraph, Ken, but I want our audience to hear this because many of them have never heard the early church fathers, but this is such a wonderful summary. I want the readers to say, does this sound Baptist? Does this sound Presbyterian? Does this sound Methodist? Does this sound Catholic? And do we hear in this uh, an early summary of that which we experience every Sunday? when we celebrate the Eucharist. Let me read. And then, Ken, please add with your comment. This nourishment is called the Eucharist among us. No one is allowed to partake of it other than the one who believes the things that taught by us to be true. And the one whose sins are washed away and who receive the washing leading to new birth. In this way, it is for the one who lives as Christ handed down to us. For we do not receive these as common bread or as common food. Rather, in the manner that Jesus Christ, our Savior, who was made flesh through the word of God, took on flesh and blood for our salvation, so too we are taught that the food which is made the Eucharist by the prayer of the word from him is in fact the flesh and blood of that Jesus who was made flesh. This food nourishes our blood and flesh by way of a transformation. The apostles in those memoirs by them called Gospels handed on in this way the things that were commanded, namely, that Jesus took bread, gave thanks, Eucharist, and said, Do this in remembrance of me, this is my body. And taking the cup similarly, he gave thanks and said, This is my blood. Give a share to them only. This is what the evil demons have handed down in the mysteries of Mithra, that bread and a cup of water is placed in the rites of the initiate with their conclusions. You know this or can learn from it. I mean, Ken, this is amazing when you hear it in parallel with the Eucharistic liturgy. Oh, yeah, I think it, it, it particularly striking to me, Marcus, is this um, analogy or this parallelism that he sets up in the manner that Jesus Christ took on flesh and blood for our salvation, he goes on to say that the Eucharist is made the flesh and blood by this prayer. It's the same Jesus who was made flesh and blood. I I don't see how you could get more clearly that this man believed. Even if you don't believe him, you have to say he believed that this is the same flesh as the flesh of Jesus Christ. Now, another thing that strikes me about this text is he goes on to say, this food nourishes our blood and flesh by way of a transformation. 
This is the earliest expression of the idea of transubstantiation. That is that it takes place through a miraculous change from being simply bread and wine to being the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And that once that bread and wine have been now transformed or configured or changed into the body and blood of Christ, it begins to transform us as well. It transforms us into be more, more and more members of that body. So uh, St. Justin Martyr has, is a remarkable, uh, with remarkable clarity, lays out for us the early church's faith in the Eucharist. Ken, because Justin Martyr was also a student of philosophy, I'm wondering if, if the early Christians had a better sense of the, of the mystery of the both and versus the, the, the strictured dichotomy of the either or that is so prevalent amongst non-Catholic Christian traditions, you know, and I think that's what divides Lutherans and Calvinists and Ar- Arminians and others is the battle or the, the either this or it's that. It's, it can't be both. It's either this or that, as opposed yeah. to the mystery of the Trinity, which is a both and. It's the mystery of the divinity of Christ, which is a both and. It's the mystery of you and me and all Christians baptized into Jesus Christ of the both and. The, uh, and so we see in the Eucharist the mystery of the both and. I mean, was that also a battle that was happening in these days of the early church? Well, it's it's a human battle, and therefore it was in that time as well. It, it's the battle of going in two opposite but wrong directions. One is either a both and that um, sort of way, uh, sort of uh, pairs down, or rather. Uh, simply includes all kinds of pagan ideas. And that, that has been, that was the tendency of the Gnostics of the ancient church, was to include pagan ideas into Christianity. There's the other one, and that is what you spoke of, the either-or, which ex- which puts a wedge between things that really should be united together. And so this is part of the beauty of this ancient Catholic tradition, which is also in the Eastern Orthodox churches. Right. But it's that tradition which sees that the, the, the worship of the church on earth is the both and. It is the and. God, Christ is in heaven, but he's also and he is on earth. He's not either in heaven or on earth. He's both in heaven and on earth because of his presence in the Eucharist. I mean, I look at you, Ken, and I see physically a human being. Uh, You have less flaws than I do, but we, (laughs) you know, we're we're human beings. But what I don't see is that the baptism that you received many years ago changed you. You're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You're a child of God. You've experienced the divine presence of the Holy Spirit within your heart. I don't see that. I see evidence of it through your words and through your actions. But there's a both and in us, too. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, there's there's, there's just, body and spirit. There's nature and grace within each one of us who are baptized into Christ. Um, I think what what is um, what's exciting or what's uh, compelling is how the early church walked that thin line 
between acknowledging truth that was in various pagan religions, so it had a both-and component. It brought those things in which were true, but then it discerned and said, well, there are certain things that are not true, and that's where the either-or comes in. And there has to be the balance between that. You actually see that in this passage in Justin Martyr when he talks about the mysteries of Mithra. Oh, yeah. Almost all, I mean, every all students of this period of time know that there were these so-called mystery religions that were exi- that existed. And by the way, in the Church of Saint Clement in Rome, that's very close to the Colosseum, we know there is a section there where their Mithra, the Mithraism, was was in fact uh, celebrated in the bottom level of that church, huh. and then it became a Christian church. You see, so what they did was gradually. By taking in that which was good, rejecting that which was bad, they found uh, ultimately the victory of Christ over the over paganism in the ancient Roman Empire. We always called that grace building on nature, right, Ken? I mean, exactly. that's kind of the, the yeah. idea because he does yeah. that in our lives too. Uh, Absolutely, with us, yeah. you know, he takes our flaws and then by grace can turn those into ways of praising him and and yeah. serving him. Ken, um, I mean, there's so much in this. Next week, I want to pick up on looking straight on at the Corinthian passages, but I can't help but going from this passage in St. Justin Martyr to 1 Corinthians 10 because it just so sounds like what's in the mind of Justin Martyr when Paul wrote, beginning with verse 16, that the cup of blessing which we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This participation, Ken, is a significant term mm-hmm. in this understanding of of the, the what the experience of the Eucharist does for us individually as well as as a body of Christ. Well, yeah, the the Greek word here, of course, is the word um, koinonia, and the translated into Latin is usually the word communio. The <clears throat> the um, the koinonia that Paul is speaking about here is twofold. One, it is a sharing or a participation of a vertical relationship. It's sharing in the actual body and blood of Christ, but it's also horizontal. That is, that it binds all the members together who share in the body and blood of Christ. This text seems to me to be a very clear witness to the fact that Paul believed that by receiving the quote-unquote bread and wine in communion, one is in a true communion with Christ, and not just Christ in general, but he says, with his body, with his blood, in other words, with his humanity. Or as some Catholic uh, theologians say, that it is a communion with the sacred humanity of Christ. Christ was fully man, but it was a sacred humanity because it was indwelled. That humanity was indwelt by the Word, the, the Logos, the eternal Son of God. So his 
sacralized humanity, his sacred humanity, is communicated through the bread and the wine properly consecrated. Ken, it seems to me that this points out one of the dangers of the whole sola scriptura idea that is so prevalent amongst sincere, well-meaning Christians that when they look at the scripture alone, they miss this backdrop, the background. So if we look at this background we've been looking at from Justin Martyr, from Ignatius, and then then in Paul, this understanding of the Eucharist and the communion and the participation of the true body and blood, the holding in their hands of the body and blood of Christ. Ken, would you say this is what's behind that first paragraph in the first letter of John, which in in letter, let let me read this, Ken, and listen that behind what John is writing is this very thing. When John writes, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we saw it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you may have Fellowship, koinonia, communion, participation with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Wow, that's a, that is a powerful passage with regard to the, the true humanity of Jesus Christ and the fact that we have communion with that same Jesus Christ. Yeah. And is this, it is this participation which our Lord said was central as He gave us the Eucharist on the night in which He was betrayed. He told His apostles, to continue this, and they passed it on, and then we see this witnessed in the lives of these early church Christians. Ken, now, just to remind the audience that the the translations we were reading were your own, right? (laughs) That's right. Uh From your books, Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp of Smyrna, Clem of Roma Didache, and also that translation of Justin Martyr was your own, which we hope maybe to publish someday. Okay. Thanks, Ken. We'll join you next week. We'll pick up these verses from 1 Corinthians, all right? Thanks. And all of you, thank you for joining us. I I hope this has been an encouragement to you. Next week, we're going to look at those passages in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11 that deal with the Eucharist, and we'll look deeper on how we understand those today in our walk with Jesus Christ. If you want to find out more about this program, go to chnetwork.org where you can find out about the work of the Coming Home Network as well as more about this program. Thank you for joining us. God bless. See you next week.